This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and enter offer code SPOILER9. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Blue Caprice. And joining me in the Slate studio is John Swansburg, the editorial director of Slate. Hi, John. Hey, Dana. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here, and I'm very happy to talk about this movie with you, which in a way doesn't need spoiling because it's about a real event. This right. is a, a movie about based on a true story about the, the Beltway snipers, so-called. These are the shootings that took place in the Washington, D.C. area in 2002. Right, although it, it has that uh, effect, which is some, sometimes uh, disconcerting, which is it makes you realize how quickly you forget the recent recent history. Like when, as I was watching it last night and trying to, in my mind, figure out how accurate it was, I had the... Uh, realization that in fact I didn't remember the details of the of the Beltway sniper story as well as I should have, given that I lived through it. My younger sister was actually a student at the University of Richmond at the time, so not far from the area. So you know, I was on edge when this was happening. And was yet, there a lockdown kind of effect on her? Campus? I think Richmond was far enough away that it, there wasn't a lockdown, but you know, certainly uh, it was. She was close enough that it was that it was scary. That I, I felt like I had family who was in the kind of uh, radius uh, where the killings were happening. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, I I couldn't remember exactly even how many uh, people were shot and uh, fatally and not uh, as I was watching the movie. And that sort of was jarring. Uh, Right. And as we'll get to later, the movie doesn't do a great job of refreshing (laughs) your memory on those details. So maybe we should actually briefly go over them right now, just what what we do know about the shooting. So so the the perpetrators who were played in this movie by Isaiah Washington and uh, Tequan Richmond Mm -hmm. were a, a... Black man in his maybe 30s, 40s, and a a young, very young 17-year-old boy who he was passing off as his son. Their names were John Allen Muhammad. And uh, Lee Lee Boyd Malvo is the young man. Right. And and over a period of three weeks, I guess, around three weeks in, in late 2002, they essentially drove around the Washington area shooting whoever they felt like, just random targets that they had chosen for reasons that are never quite clear in this movie and were never quite clear in real life, but which had to do with, you know, essentially choosing random targets in almost a terrorist fashion. Right. Yeah, it seemed from the from the material that I read after the movie, and the movie certainly does make you want to turn back to the, to the reporting on the story because it doesn't give you a great answers to a lot of the questions uh, it raises, um, suggested that, yeah, even I think the prosecutors were uh, not sure what they, how to present a motive in this case because it seemed senseless at the time and I don't think they ever quite unpacked it. And um, John Allen Muhammad eventually was sentenced to death and is, was put to death in 2009. So I, I think he, he uh, to some degree, took the – if there ever was an answer to the question of why, he took it probably to the grave with him. Right. And, and Lee Boyd Malvo, because he was a minor, was sentenced to a much lesser sentence but is still serving life in prison. Yeah. I mean I think it's six consecutive life sentences. So as lesser sentences go, it's still a pretty extensive one. Right. So before we get into specifics about the movie, I just want to get an overall reaction from you. Is this something you would send people to if they're either curious about the shootings or just want to see a very creepy movie about two assassins on a rampage? Uh, I think if people who fit the latter description would enjoy the movie more than the former. The the movie does not... uh, I I was under the misimpression, I think, that it would be a movie that kind of retold this story and shed light uh, based on revelations, you know, during the trial uh, or reporting after the the, um, Malvo and Muhammad were apprehended uh, that would shed light on 
what ha- what actually happened, what their motivation was, what their relationship was, et cetera, et cetera. But really, this is a much artier movie uh, than I anticipated. It's not a, a sort of biopic about John uh, Mohammed or, or Lee Boyd Malvo. It's uh, the director is French. The movie feels sort of French <laughs> um, throughout. And uh, the the shootings themselves occupy a surprisingly small amount of what is a short runtime of 93 minutes. The, right. the shootings don't even start until the, the last third of the movie and are almost take place as a montage at the end. So it's really more a study of the relationship between the older man and his sort of uh, adoptive, adopted son. Right. Apparently, Alexander Moore, the director, the, the young French director, this is his first movie. It's a debut feature had originally planned not to put the killings in at all. He just wanted to show the lead up and would have essentially stopped the film at the moment they drive across the country from Tacoma, Washington, where the movie starts out to um, to, to the Beltway. Oh, wow. Um, and then he did decide to shoot some footage about that and he was going to intercut it and sort of a he was going to use a structure that was essentially cutting from the prep to the murders and then back again and what he eventually decided to do which feels to me like a last minute decision is just to sort of lump all of the DC murders into this like you say almost like a brief montage at the end well one thing he doesn't do for sure is make any sort of police procedural or you know a TikTok kind of thriller that shows step by step how these killings came about it's, no. it's all very elliptical and elusive it's very elliptical and you know I could imagine uh, a listener uh, hearing that and saying, well, that's okay. These two characters are, they sound, I mean, as diabolical as their act was. They It could be interesting to watch a movie that's sort of a character study about um, these two men who, you know, re- went from obscurity in Tacoma, Washington to becoming this, this story that gripped the nation and terrified uh, the Beltway area. And yet for me, I think uh, this is the thought I had overnight. I don't feel like the character study at the, in the, at the end was all that illustrative. I don't feel like it offered a, a really uh, interesting portrait of these two men and what brought them together. And, and I, I left kind of really confused as to what their motivations were. Again, we, we don't seem to know what their motivations were. It's maybe not – it's maybe asking too much of this film to say, OK, here's why it happened. And yet even, even in a sort of more um, – general way. I just didn't quite understand who these who these men were or why they were doing what they were doing, even though the movie devotes so much time to their to their characters and their relationship. Right. Well, I said earlier that it starts off in, in Tacoma, Washington. That's not quite true. There's actually a short segment at the beginning that takes place on the island of Antigua, where Lee Boyd Malvo was from, and shows him being abandoned by his mother at the age of, I think, 15 or 16, and, uh, and essentially just sort of living by himself with no food and no one taking care of him until he meets uh, John Allen Muhammad at the beach with his three young children. And it's implied, perhaps, that Lee Boyd Malvo was trying to drown himself, or was it just that he was going swimming and started to drown? It seemed to me that he was trying to drown himself... Uh... Uh, maybe he was he did it because he was trying he he'd been observing John Muhammad who seemed like a sort of charismatic guy who was kind treating his children in a kindly fashion the movie seems to imply that you know Malvo wanted to somehow insinuate himself into Muhammad's life because he's this he's like you said he's a kid who's been abandoned his father's not in the picture ever his mother's left him behind and so the first you know they're they're meeting as imagined by the movie and I think this part is imagined uh, I don't think we know that this happened, but yeah, Malvo sort of walks out into the water in a seeming suicide attempt, and Mohammed um, saves him, and that is sort of the beginning of their relationship. And obviously, you know, there is something interesting there. Mohammed is with his children at the beginning of the movie, but we soon learn that he is estranged from uh, his wife and the mother of those children, and in fact, she's taken out a restraining order against him, and so he's that's he's sort of it almost seems like he's absconded with those children that he's not supposed to have them, and and when he gets back to the states from Antigua, they are taken away from him and, and he is that's sort of the source of his uh, anger at society and um, 
Once when, again, this is us connecting the dots, though. We never see the children get taken away or right. see the wife or see any kind of action being taken. No, this is all them. yeah extrapol- extrapolated from what, from what we saw. But, you know, the, Mohammed seems to be a loving father, if a somewhat crazy one, who is deprived of his children. Malvo is a sort of slight, a seemingly disturbed young man without a father figure. So in that sense, the movie does a pretty deft job of saying, okay, here's why these two people gravitated to one another. The leap that I didn't quite then... F- understand was how do these two sort of um, people who have these, you know, these issues and, and in their lives end up deciding to go and terrorize the world by shooting people out from the back of a uh, cutlass caprice like that, that I don't understand. And I don't think the, the, maybe the movie really knows why they did it either. Um, and again, that's a lot to ask of the movie, but it's frustrating sitting there watching it in given these ellipses uh, that, you know, I just don't I never got a sense that the, that the director had a theory. Yeah. Well, the, maybe you're, you're kind of nailing why I think the first 20 or 30 minutes are the best part of the movie, because at that point you assume, well, this is going to ramp up into something really complex that really explains this this relationship, this strange mentorship and how it became you know, this murderous partnership. And it's very all very beautifully shot. I mean, one thing you can't fault this movie for is sort of it's it's restraint, right? If anything, right. it's it's sort of too restrained. But yeah, but it it it. it it never goes over the top. The, the music is beautiful and, and very sparingly used. Um, as we were saying last night, even the ugliest parts of America, which seems to be something that Alexander Morris is obsessed with showing, you know, sort of a, a abandoned parking lot with a dumpster with garbage blowing around it. He manages to shoot it in this sort of lyrical way. Right. And, uh, and, and so everything is kind of mysteriously and beautifully presented. And I just kept sort of thinking, well, soon this is going to blossom into something much richer than it ever did. Yeah, it's already in sort of in a good way and a bad way. Like you said, it, it is beautiful to look at. It's beautiful to listen to and uh and spare like not a lot of dialogue in fact taquan richmond the boy hardly says anything at all he barely speaks um he has you know but a few lines of dialogue and some of them are him reading out loud a a sort of army manual about what you know the sort of code of the sniper i mean in terms of actual words that he says it must you know could probably barely fit a page of of uh dialogue so after this opening section on the island of Antigua, we go with the two of them to Tacoma, Washington, where John Allen Muhammad lives. His children drop out of the picture completely. Right. And at first, they're they're kind of mooching off this girlfriend, right, this this woman who soon throws them out because it becomes clear that they're very undependable house, house guests. They're stealing right. her moped and driving around town on it, going back to his wife's old neighborhood and spying on her house and right. generally engaging in kind of creepy activities. So she <laughs> throws them out. And then we embark on this section of the movie where you and I both agreed that it's the most basic basic facts about their lives are very unclear. I mean, whether this is a biopic or a thriller or not, even if it is trying to be as as elusive as it can be, it would still be good to know just exactly where are they living, right? How right. are they living? And sort of what's what's the structure of their lives during this period that they start to develop the idea for their crimes? Yeah, it was frustrating. I mean, they ultimately end up uh, sort of freeloading at a different house, the house of a old army buddy of Mohammed's, uh, played by Tim Blake Nelson. And, and uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character is a sort of gun nut, and uh, that sort of occasions several trips to the woods to shoot Bushmaster rifles and uh, handguns, and that sort of brings the guns into the picture. Um, but yeah, it's very hard to know sort of what their day-to-day situation is. Like, what we never see, like, the room they're sleeping in, or, you know, that we never really, there's no sort of conversation between Tim Blake Nelson and his wife about, you know, these creepy house guests and how long are they going to stay? Uh, or I guess there's one very uh, abrupt conversation about that, but it's it's unsatisfying. And so, yeah, there's, again, it is like this, it's this uh, elliptical, arty movie, but there's a way in which you kind of just don't have a a sense of the most basic details of their life and how they're unfolding. Um, 
Although, ironically, there, there is this one very important scene uh, that unfolds in which the movie sort of makes its most uh, obvious attempt to, I guess, explain Muhammad's thinking behind the, um, the rampage that, that is to come. Uh, and that actually takes place in a supermarket uh, while they're shopping for groceries, a very mundane detail, the likes of which is other, otherwise absent from the movie. They go shopping. Uh, it's not clear where their money comes from, but they go to like, get milk and veggie burgers. Uh, and um, Muhammad sort of un- unfurls this plan that he has to um, start killing people randomly. And at least as the movie sees it, you know, the, his plan is that he just sort of wants to bring down the system uh, in this, in the, by, by doing this, by creating chaos, by shooting people, shooting a man, and then sh- when they think he's targeting men, shooting a woman. And when they think he's targeting a woman, shooting a pregnant woman. And when they think he's targeting pregnant women, shoot a kid. And he sort of starts, you know, saying this uh, to Malvo and saying this is our plan. Um, and again, I mean, that's just sort of the closest we get to any kind of explanation, but it's still pretty vague. It seems like he's angry at the system for having taken his kids away from him, from preventing him from talking to his wife with this restraining order. And so he, inco- he concocts this plan to just go and kill uh, people at random. And I guess the, the fall of the U.S. government, you know, will surely follow <laughs> follow from that somehow. And that, that's interesting because it's revisited later, much later in the movie, after the killings have already happened from a different point of view, the exact same scene because we forgot to mention that while he's he's going on this this rant about this rampage he wants to go on, that Malvo starts shoplifting. He's, right. he's essentially just shoving shoving food into his backpack. He gets caught by a store manager and gets a talking to. That's kind of an important scene because it lets us see what a master manipulator John Al Muhammad is because he sort of talks his way out of the shoplifting thing. Right. But yeah, when that scene recurs and we see it all from a different point of view and we hear a little bit more of his rant, that was a little bit confusing to me too because it remains equally a uh, uh, elliptical exactly what what the plan is i'm not sure what the revisitation was about but i did think that that point of view shift was kind of cool yeah because the first time we see it it's it's really more from malvo's point of view and we see that that mohammed is still talking and and detailing his plot but we are no longer able to hear him because what the dialogue we're hearing is this is the you know store employee uh reprimanding malvo for for shoplifting but yeah again it, it, you know it was it's not until the even further into the movie that we get a glimpse of what mohammed might have been thinking in these killings and so that is not until after the killings have started. So while we're watching the killings uh, take place in the film, we have really no idea of, of what the film's theory is of, of what uh, what Muhammad is up to or and why Malvo is sort of along for the ride other than the fact that he has no one else in the world uh, to turn to. Well, the way the movie has it, and again, I know we're going to have a browbeat post, right? Aisha Harris at Slade is going to write something about the truth factor in this movie and how right. much of this stuff actually happened, but it, it makes it look as if Malvo alone did the first killing. I mean, even though the movie clearly sets up that he's the mentee in the mentee-mentor position, that he's just this this pretty passive, you know, messed up kid who's being manipulated by this older man. He actually goes on his own to shoot the first victim. Right. Who uh, is someone loosely connected to the family of, of John Allen Muhammad. Like, it seems to be a woman who takes care of his children, possibly, and he says something about her having testified against him in court. I think she's somebody who's part of the reason there's a restraining order against him. At least the person who used to live in that house. It's, it's not clear whether the person that Malvo actually shoots is the... That's right. He says, the, I think I got the wrong person. Right. So we don't even know whether... He just goes to the address uh, where that, that person who testified against Muhammad used to live, but it's not really clear from the, from the film or clear to Malvo. 
in the aftermath whether he's even killed the right person. Now that we're talking about all this stuff, I mean, at the time, I think I was sort of caught up in the, the eerie mood of the whole thing and sort of thought, well, it will all become clear in time. But I'm getting annoyed that this movie did such a poor job of explaining who the victims were or, you know, what order they came in or even how many there were. You could easily walk out of this movie not knowing that, you know, 10 people died and three people were injured and some of those people were in different states right. and that they drove across the country, you know, in, in preparation for this rampage and killed some people along the way. None of that is really, is really clear. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's a website, an advertisement, a multimedia presentation, or any kind of film project. They source their video clips from around the world, and they get 10,000 new clips every week, so whenever you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Just start your account... Start using the service to see what your next project could be like, and save the selections you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER9, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. So again, that's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER9. All right, so back to Blue Caprice. Uh, so one question I had for you, Dana, is what you thought of the way the movie handled the shootings once we got to them. Um, we've I, we've complained about the fact that the details of who the people uh, who the victims were uh, are sort of how left, many there were, how many there were. were. Yeah, like that's that stuff. The movie doesn't handle, and I do think that that is problematic. Um, but just the sort of the, sh- the sheer like visceral feeling of watching um, Malvo crouched in the trunk of the Caprice, um, sort of targeting very different people uh, through his the sight line of his of his gun, while Mohammed is sitting in in the car, uh, sort of telling him that he's clear to shoot. Did you did you find that? Um, well done, uh, terrifying, etc. I don't know. I mean, I w- uh, terrifying, I would say no. I mean, it's, it's disturbing on the very basic level that, you know, watching a depiction of any killing is disturbing. It's certainly not gory or explicit in any way. You could certainly not fault, fault the director with, you know, being exploitative and gory. You barely see the faces or bodies of the people who die, and it's mm-hmm. very fast. But... I think all of that, I don't want more gore necessarily, but yeah, I needed more explication in that part. I would say the last time that I that this movie really worked for me and that I, I cared about what was happening was actually maybe the moment that the director initially wanted to end it, which is right when they're driving into D.C. and you start to see these signs like Reston, Virginia. You know, you realize that they're approaching D.C. Right. and you know vaguely, just from the news at least, what's about to happen. There's this beautiful really creepy I think it's Ervo Parrot there's this kind of modern classical choral music on the soundtrack yeah, do you remember that that sort yeah. of sounds like alien nuns from outer space <laughs> or something and you see the back of the blue caprice which they've doctored you know there's they've been a lot about this car they, they bought it with the money that they ripped off of a bartender that was one of their early victims and they kind of customized the trunk for, for killing cutting out this little little hole for the gun to come out of so Malvo can crouch in there and shoot and uh as you were saying, the, the title Blue Caprice is actually one of the best things about this movie. <laughs> it's definitely right? my favorite thing about the whole movie. <laughs> and uh, and so that moment that you see the Blue Caprice driving away from you toward D.C. with the Airbo Parrot music was something that I thought, okay, now it's really going to get crazy. And then after that, I almost did feel like I was watching some sort of arty montage of vague depictions of, you know, you see part of a person's body standing pumping gas. It is true that one of their victims was killed while pumping gas at a gas station. And then, you know, you see that person lying in a pool of blood. And then you see the blue caprice driving somewhere else and some other, you know, very vague image of someone being shot. I don't know. I I just thought that whole part neither taught us anything about the killings or taught us anything about them, the father and son, fake father and son duo and what was happening between them. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I I did think that 
Uh, there is one scene where the camera is essentially looking through uh, Malvo's uh, gun sight, and he's trying to pick a target, and he thinks he has someone picked out, and then that person is on a cigarette break at a shopping center, and he goes back in, in the store. And then he thinks he has another guy, but then he sort of goes around his car on the wrong side, and Malvo no longer has a clear shot. And I did think that that, that brief moment kind of captured for you or made you feel in a very real way, the, the truly random nature of these killings in a, in, a, in a quite chilling fashion. It's like, oh, my God, it could have been this guy, but he luckily decided that his cigarette break was over and went inside, and it wasn't, and it was this other person. And it did really drive home for you uh, the randomness of these crimes, which I think is obviously at the essence of the terror that they inflicted on uh, the nation. So I thought that, you know, that in that way, that one moment of the killing montage was effective, but I agree with your your other criticisms. And uh, you know, the victims are so um, anonymous to the movie. And the other thing is, I mean, really, America is anonymous in this movie. This is, movie is so locked into Malvo and Mohammed, uh, and to a you know a lesser degree, uh, Mohammed's friend played by Tim Blake Nelson, that you really don't get a sense of of the nation in which these killings unfolded. And the movie wants you to think that Mohammed's, you know, motivation was to sort of bring down the system. But I don't know. I mean, other than the kind of beautiful arty shots of Tacoma, you know, uh, trash heaps, there's not a real sense of the America that produced this this man or or the America that he wanted to sort of fight back against in his deluded terror terror filled way. Right. Even though there is some larger sense that the movie is trying to say something about America, it just it seems clear that there's some sort of attempted allegory at work. I mean, it's as we were saying, since it's definitely not a biopic or something that's trying to be really factually accurate and precise, nor is it trying to be a thriller that kind of, you know, ramps up the maximum suspense. I feel like the only thing that it can be trying to do is show this relationship, which I think it does at times well, but fairly vaguely, and to sort of say something about what in the culture might have caused these killings, what not just the personal motivations were, but sort of what was the context of violence and alienation and loneliness and kind of masculine isolation in which the whole thing took place. And I I also feel like it was very imprecise on those questions. I agree. Well, so obviously key to this movie working is the two performances at its heart working since it is essentially a two-man show. Like you say, there's a little bit of of sort of bouncing off of the foil of Tim Blake Nelson and Joey Lauren Adams, who plays his wife, who who house them for a while in Tacoma. But essentially, we're spending every minute just right up close with these two actors. So what did you think of Isaiah Washington and and Taquan Richmond? Um, I thought that they were good performances. Uh, As we've said before, the Richmond character is so quiet that that his performance felt a little blank to me. Um, I think that's probably what the movie was going for. I think we're supposed to believe that Malva was something like a, a blank slate or a, a lump of clay that that he was sort of molded into this uh, kind of evildoer by the um, sort of cagier character uh, played by Washington. Um, I, I, I'm a big Isaiah Washington fan. Um, I've I really enjoyed his work uh, in the sort of early Spike Lee films. I loved him in Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Uh, I know he got in trouble for uh, using some uh, awful gay slurs on the set of uh, Grey's Anatomy and has sort of been in... Uh, exile, sort of maybe half self-imposed, half real uh, exile, I guess in West Africa, we learned uh, in the Q&A with Washington after the movie that we saw. Um, And so I was glad to see him again. And it was a very restrained performance and um, I think a pretty powerful one given what he was working with. And again, like there's so much spareness in the filmmaking. I think it's, it's, it was a hard challenge for, for Washington to kind of realize this character, but I think he did about as good a job as he could working with this director and this script. Yeah, I agree. It's really Isaiah Washington's movie. I mean, to the extent that there's a reason to see Blue Caprice, as we were saying, it's not it's not to get a depiction of the murders themselves. I don't think also that the artiness alone takes it that far. Yeah. But, uh, but Isaiah Washington is, is pretty great and not hamming it up at all in what could easily have been, you know, sort of a grand villain 
Wilson type of role. Yeah. There is something kind of terrifying about how he, he like, as you said before, he can be charismatic, um, but he's not that charismatic. It's sort of scary to think that a guy uh, like that um, could, who has a bad idea like that, could execute that idea and get someone else to go along with him. Um, that's sort of a scary notion. So after this very vague montage of the killings in D.C., there's a moment that we see them get caught, get apprehended as they're sleeping in their blue caprice in a parking lot somewhere. And and then taken in. And then we never see Isaiah Washington's character, John Allen Muhammad, again, which is a really strange way to end the movie. Um, we only see the boy briefly in one scene where he's being kind of deposed by this lawyer in jail, and he refuses to give anything away. And the very last thing we hear him say, or one of the very last things, is, where's my dad? And, of course, the fact that he says dad is, is kind of a moving—I think that's kind of a great last line for him to say. Right. But the fact that we are left in the same position of not knowing what happened, I mean, except from real life, that the movie gives us no sense at all that John Allen Muhammad is, in fact, on his way to be executed and that the boy's serving six consecutive life sentences. I found the ending really frustrating. I mean, the, the ending just takes the kid away and and we never see the main character of the movie, essentially, again. Right. Yeah, it's, it's fade to black. And there's not, you know, this. if ever there was a movie where you thought there would be titles at the end saying, in 2006, this man, you know, John Lee Muhammad was convicted of this count and, you know, give you the kind of wrap up of the story. And like you said, I mean, anyone with a smartphone can leave the theater and refresh their memory as to what exactly happened. But it is it is somehow uh, sort of unfulfilling to, to sort of end the movie after that scene. I mean, and again, it was another kind of moment of vagueness in this film. Like the last scene we see see, as you said, is is uh, Malvo being deposed, but it's not clear is that his defense attorney? Is that a prosecutor? Is that a mental health you know, a person. It wasn't, right. And it's he clearly not to? the first time he's answered those questions because he's already in jail, right? right? So there's not a sense of where he is in the legal process or anything like that. I mean, I feel like I can hear the the voice of the French director in my head saying, "But it is not about these things, <laughs> these details. It is not a newspaper." Exactly. <laughs> no, but 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 the, what is it then? I guess that's my question about Blue Caprice. If it's not a journalistic film or a thriller or any of these things that it clearly is going out of its way not to be, what is it? Why why does it exist? Yeah, I I, I leave the movie with that question. All right. Well, I guess we should leave the podcast with that question as well. And I'm glad you came to see it with me anyway, if only because the Isaiah Washington Q&A afterwards was a, a complete blast. He's yes. I, we should say Isaiah Washington is a very um, boisterous character, uh, a very, very funny uh, and full of himself um, character. And it was interesting to hear him talk about the movie, especially since the, the French director was also there. And they were really a study in contrasts uh, and were very fun to, to observe. All right. Well, John, I hope you'll come along with me next time, too, and come back and spoil again soon. I'll be there. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.